Let's pray together. Father God, we sit under these words, uh, and as we gather here, Lord, I do recognize, as Patrick prayed, that we do come from all kinds of different places. Some of us come here, and we are filled with joy. Uh, as the sun is shining, so our joy is emanating. Others of us are here, and we are in a different place. Lord, some of us are here, and we are at the end of ourselves. Lord, others of us are here, and we are at the end of our faith. And so, Lord, I pray that whatever place we find ourselves, whether we are here in uh, a deep struggle, whether we are here battling with darkness, whether we are here rejoicing in the light, whether we are here believing in you or feeling as though our faith is hanging on by a thread, pray that you would give us grace to see that in the way that matters the most, that we do all ultimately come the same, an overwhelming and an unrelenting need to hear from you, to know you, to be changed by you. Would you open our eyes this morning? Would you flood our souls with the light of good news from Jesus Christ? Because it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, great to be with you all this morning. We are back. <laughs> after a little bit of a hiatus, we're back in our sermon series that we're calling A Sinner After God's Own Heart, looking really at the life of David. We're in this kind of introductory material here. And it's, it presents this paradox that I find to be so captivating. How is it that the man after God's own heart, the one whom God would choose and, and exalt and lift up to lead his people, also happens to be one of the greatest sinners uh, in the Holy Scriptures? That's the question that I'm asking. And this passage that Autumn read for us this morning uh, is a key moment in the history of Israel in terms of bringing about uh, the monarchy and the kingship. And what's interesting about this passage is I was reflecting on it and really wrestling with it. I found this to be a passage that uh, presents a number of difficulties that I had a hard time answering, which is always a good sign for a sermon, right? Um, as I was meditating on it, reflecting on it, and trying to ask the, the Lord this question, Lord, what do you have for us? It occurred to me that this passage presents uh, a dynamic of the soul that I have seen played out in my own life and in your lives and in the lives of others that I care about over and over again, and it occurred to me, I had the light bulb come on, the sun came out, and I said, aha, this passage diagnoses one of the biggest threats to joy in the Christian life, which, you know, was very helpful to me because I went back to my mission, which if you've never heard my preaching before, you might not know that my goal this morning, what I'm attempting to do is to increase your joy in God, right? That you would leave these doors, that you would have met with God, and that you would walk out with a deeper and more powerful and a more abiding joy in Him. And what this passage brings out is, um, I think, one of the greatest threats to that happening, right? One of the greatest threats to your joy being increased, right? One of the greatest dangers to it is really the main topic of this passage, and the, I titled this sermon, Insisting on Bondage, right? Insisting on bondage. What are we talking about here? Well, the people are, in, are being told, listen, if you go down this path, if you make for yourselves a king like the other nations, you will be in bondage to them. They will exercise control over your life. They will take your daughters. They will take your fields. They will take your money. Right? He, he lays it out in high definition, they will control you, and yet the people say, 
we insist. We insist. We're okay with that. And friends, it occurred to me as I was, you know, reflecting on this passage and trying to understand how it connects to your lives and the things that you're facing today, right now, it occurs to me that I have seen this play out over and over and over and over again in your life and in mine. One of my favorite examples is uh, when I was uh, just out of high school, I got my first computer job, right? And, you know, computer jobs make better money than other jobs, at least they did back then. And so I was making some money, and I was all excited, and I wanted to buy or lease a new car. And my mom sat me down and had this talk with me, and this is what she said. I had it all picked out. It was an Acura, you know, <laughs> white with, with black leather. Um, and I was just, I was like, yeah, but, you know, I can afford this payment and everything. And she said this. She said, Darren, she looked at me. She says, this car will own you. You won't own it. It will own you. Right, you will, you know, these are six years of payments, and every month, month after month after month, you will be a slave to this loan. That's what she said. And I remember it very vividly. I, I ended up not doing it. I got a Nissan instead. It was, you know, not as fun. Um, but yeah, you know, I remember the language of that. She said, if you go down this path, it will control you. And it's interesting, friends, because I was thinking about you know, our lives and our tendencies. And I, I believe that this reality, this dynamic of the way that we live our lives is one of the greatest blind spots of our lives, right? What do I mean by that? What, what Samuel is attempting to do and show these folks, he's saying, you are voluntarily placing yourselves in an arrangement, in a relationship, in a dynamic whereby you will become slaves to this person, right? Where you'll become subordinate. Slaves might be a little bit exaggeration, but that's the idea. He said, you are placing yourselves in an arrangement where you will be in bondage to this thing that you are demanding. And I was thinking about it, and it occurred to me that this is actually not, this is not unique to Israel, right? For example, have you, if you've ever known anyone who has any kind of an addiction, right? How does addiction work? Well, C.S. Lewis tells us, an ever-decreasing pleasure, right, talking about drugs in particular, for an ever-increasing cost. That's the way addiction works. Addiction seeks to own you and to control you by an ever-decreasing pleasure, right? The hits get less and less and less great, and the cost to your body, to your finances, to your life, to your relationships, right, the cost just keeps going up and up and up. I remember the first time I ministered and walked with someone through a drug addiction, there was an older gentleman who had been through addiction himself, and I was just completely new and, you know, more stupid than I am now. <laughs> and I remember this older guy saying to me, saying, Darren, this, this guy is going to lose his job. It's like, it's not even, not even like questionable. It's going to happen. And I was like, no, are you sure? It's not that bad. We can intervene. And he's like, Darren, it's over. He's going to lose his job, right? And he totally lost his job, <laughs> lost all kinds of things, right? And why? Because my, my colleague, who was older and more experienced and who'd lived through addiction himself, he said, this is how addiction works. It just increases its control over you until it robs you and robs you and robs you and robs you. And, until, you know, and you cannot get help until you run out of things for it to take from you. Right? They call it rock bottom. Right? Until you're at rock bottom, you're just going to have to keep giving and giving and giving and serving and serving and serving. And then finally something breaks. That's the way addiction works. That's an extreme example. But 
this, this reality of becoming enslaved to people or things or, or uh, desires that you have, this is something that represents a blind spot in the scriptures and in your lives as well. Uh, one of my favorite quotes from, uh, related to this is when Jesus is arguing with group of people in John chapter 8. So this is, John chapter 8 is leading towards this climax where uh, Jesus will say, he will reveal his identity. He'll say, before Abraham was, I am. And he says that, and they're like ready to pick up the stones and ready to execute him on the spot. But as he's getting there, he's saying, you guys are slaves to sin. And what's great about it is, they respond to him, they say, we are children of Abraham, we have never been enslaved to anyone, right? <laughs> I'm sitting there thinking like, all right, well, there was Egypt, okay? <laughs> and there was the period of the Maccabees, and there was, you know, kind of like going through my Bible history thinking like, you know, that's a little ironic, actually, right? What, what's the point of that, right? The point of it is that this reality is one that often constitutes a blind spot of the soul, Right? Most people don't come to me and say, Darren, you know, I'm thinking of becoming under the control of another person, or I'm thinking of becoming under the control of these desires. And no, I've never heard anyone say that, and yet this is a, an issue that we all face over and over and over again. And in this passage, you know, the, the thing that really is, brings to the, to the forefront is actually politics, Right? So here these folks are, and they are desperate for a king to really fight their battles, right? That's the issue that's raised at the time, right? They weren't, wasn't fiscal solvency, right? It was geopolitical matters. They're saying, we want someone to really represent us and to fight our battles and that we can be proud of. And, you know, as, as this was going on, I was thinking about it, and I thought, you know, in politics in our day and age, too, one of the interesting things that occurred to me is that one of the complaints that I have about politics, right, is that it seems difficult and rare for anyone to get traction who has independent thought, right? So if you like a candidate, for example, in office, how many candidates actually get traction who disagree with their party's own platform, right? It's rare, and that's true in every party, as far as I can tell. Right? You see people and, and they, they appear to have independent thought, but then the, the more that the process goes on, they actually start walking back their positions that are independent, right? And they start towing the line. Why is that? Because politics exercises control. That is the whole point, right? Politics in our day and age, similar to in uh, the time period of this passage, politics is about exercising control. And, you know, folks that go into that world, I think they always learn that this is what the dynamic is, right? That you go in and you might have your own ideas, your own voice, and there are different uh, degrees to which this is true, but to a large extent, folks go in and they realize that this is an environment of profound control, and if I don't tow the line of those who are in authority, I won't go it very far, Right? So that's one of the dynamics that happens, and it's, it's what's happening here, right? These folks are demanding a, a solution to their problems, and what Samuel is doing is he is warning them as best as he knows how, if you do this, you will enter into bondage. And of course, they answer by saying, we're fine with that. So what I want to do is just walk briefly through the passage and try to make a couple observations 
asking the question, how is it that you and I can become more aware of our blind spots? And how can we walk with Christ in such a way that increases our freedom in him? It's a real priority in the scriptures. You know, so much of the New Testament is about actually this issue, right? For example, if you read Romans chapter 6, what Paul goes over and over and over again, he's saying is, listen, you're a slave to your sin, and in Christ you can be free, right? In Galatians it will come up. In the Gospels it will come up. It's an incredible theme. So what I want to do is make some observations in this passage and see if we can get some help in this regard. So first of all, the first observation, uh, the beginning of our chapter here, it says, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. So Samuel judged Israel well, and he had some kids, uh, and these kids did not walk in his ways, it says, but they turned aside after gain, they took bribes, and they perverted justice. And this is the first thing that I think is really important for you to understand, for me to understand. This dynamic of entering into relationships that will own you and damage you and control you and absolutely suck the joy out of your life, these, this dynamic happens because of real problems, right? This was a real problem. These folks were sitting there saying, Samuel, you have failed us. You're a lousy parent, right? Your kids are terrible. And therefore, we need to take matters into our own hands to solve this problem another way. And friends, I'll tell you, as I was studying this passage and meditating over this passage, you know what I felt for them? I felt sympathy. <laughs> it was like, I kind of get it, right? I kind of get it. The world, the world is full of problems. And I want to tell you that, right? When you face, when you face the meltdown of, of government, for example, right? In this instance, his sons are not leading Israel well. He's on the way out. They're taking bribes, they're doing favors, they're perverting justice. People are going, bringing their case, thinking this will be right, and they rule in whatever way the, the highest bidder determines. These folks are saying, this is a huge problem. Therefore, let us go find a king, right? And I want to tell you that. It, it's not during times where everything's great that you are likely to have this happen. It's during times where there will be a crisis where there is a crisis of leadership, that's when this happened. During, uh, during the time of Samuel, right, before this, this case, we don't have any record of this. Right? This was prompted by real problems. Num second observation. The problem that seems to rise to the surface, from what I can tell, and there's some, a little bit of disagreement over this, but the problem that rises to the surface more than any other and again, it's one that I've seen exercise the strongest control over my own life and over yours is the problem of fear, right? What is this about fighting our battles? What, what's, what's behind that, right? Were they, were they in the empire business? As, as has been said, you know, I'm in the empire business. Did they want their empire? I don't think so. I don't think Israel ever wanted to be in the empire business, right? Israel wanted to have safety and peace, they wanted rest from their enemies. Uh, just a couple chapters earlier, right? The Philistines steal the ark of God, right? They are in a, they are in a time and a season of profound uncertainty, wondering whether it is whether they will be able to survive, right? And so from my sense of it is probably the most existential issue that was at work in their souls 
And the one that I have seen create this kind of thing more than anything else is <laughs> the experience of fear. Right? You see fear grip a community of people, and you will see that community of people very open to entering into relationships of profound control. I can see it in marriages, for example, where uh, someone is abusive, right? There are marriages where someone is abusive, and you see, you know, why are you, why are you not getting help? Why are you staying in it? And there's, a, there's an overwhelming sense of fear that results in that continuing to happen. So that's the second observation, right? That this was for these folks, and I, you know, one, I'll tell you, whenever I read the scripture, by the way, and I read about God giving us examples of Israel making catastrophic decisions, whenever I read that, I ask the question, how have I done something similar, or how might I do something similar? Right, if you read the Bible and you think, that's just so dumb, I would never do that, you're, an, you're a prime candidate to do that. Right, you're a prime candidate to, to, to follow after this. So um, I ask this question, you know, how have I done it, and how might I do it? And I'll tell you, it's interesting. You know, I did listen to my mom with the car thing, right? Because she made me more afraid of, of buying the car than of, you know, getting the Nissan, which was, I do have to say, was a, a disappointment, to be honest. Um, <laughs> that's okay. Um, but yeah, I was more afraid of what she said than I was of, you know, um, wanting to do zero to 60 in a certain time period. So, but in our case right here, you know, it's interesting, you, you walk with folks who are in these, these kinds of toxic relationships and they need an enormous amount of support because the fear and, and other emotions, by the way, are absolutely overpowering. So that's the second observation. What's the third observation? Well, the third one is that you have to suppress the knowledge of God. Right, that God has given us insight and knowledge in order to kind of turn away from those things, turn away from addiction, turn away from getting into you know, the kind of loan, for example, that would own us, as my mom was saying, or getting into a relationship that's abusive and controlling, for example. Right? That God, you have to suppress the knowledge of God in order to do that. Where do we see this? Well, in this passage, uh, really, I think the greatest... Um, greatest amount of time is given to Samuel detailing for them what's going to happen, and then them saying, we're going to do it. We're going to do it anyway. He details point by point, and they don't actually disagree with him. They're like, no, 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 no. it's not going to be like that. It'll be fine. Right? They're like, no, 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 it's not going to be like that. They say, all right, we're willing to pay that cost in order to have our safety, in order to have our security. We are willing to cover the cost. We would rather... We would rather all these things be true if it means safety and security. And friends, this is, um, this is, I think, a greater spiritual dynamic that's at work in our world that is highlighted by this issue, right? And that is this. Why is it that we as people will place ourselves in relationships, whether it be with a lender or with a substance or with a person, why do we do that when it comes at such a high cost, right? What's going on with that? What's the dynamic? The dynamic is, and what, what Samuel will bring out in this passage is, we are exchanging the right relationship with a sovereign providing God for an imposter, right? You see, God had promised to fight their battles. God had promised to provide them rest on every side, 
from their enemies. God had promised to be with them. God had promised. And God actually uses language that is extremely personal. If you saw that, he says to Samuel, he says, they are not rejecting you, this is verse seven, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you, right? You see, what God is saying, and this is the dynamic at play, is that when we follow God through life, right, when you follow him and, and you trust in his promises to provide rest on your borders, for example, in Israel's case, to provide the needs for your family, to provide the joy and the satisfaction that you long so deeply for, right? If you do that, there's gonna be a couple things required, right? Number one, faith. Number two, patience. Because part of walking with God is to walk patiently with him through suffering, through waiting, through longing, through unfulfilled desires, through danger, through problems, through Philistines stealing your ark, right? Through all kinds of things, and God says to the one who waits on me, the one who waits upon the Lord will have his strength renewed like eagles. The one who waits for me will be exalted. The one who perseveres to the end will be saved. That is the way of God. That is the way of faith. But the king, right, the king or the drug or the car, (laughs) Right, or the house, right, those are quicker, but they cost us dearly, right? And that is the message of this passage. The message is, do not allow this blind spot that exists in every human soul, do not allow it to take you, to turn your face away from God, right? And I want to ask you, friends, this morning, if what I'm saying is true, and I'm willing for you to to disagree with me, as always, that's totally fine. But if there's any truth to what I'm saying, I want to ask you the question, where are you facing this temptation this morning? If what I'm saying, if this is so pervasive and so common, I would like to ask you, where is it in your life, in your circumstances, that you either have already signed the paperwork of saying, I'm going to be in, you know, indentured to you for the next six years or 60 years, or where are you about to, right? And if you want to ask the question, you know where a great way to find the answer is, what are you most afraid of? Always comes most strongly through our fears, right? What are you most afraid of? You ask that question, chances are high that you probably are on the path to answering the question, where am I tempted to be just like my forefathers here, brothers and sisters, and say, yes, I understand the cost, and I'm willing to pay it. Let's go. So that is what this passage is about. It is, it is chronicling for us how it, how it is that Israel um, went down this path. Now, here's one of the biggest questions that I had, right? One of the biggest questions I had is this, of course. You know, God, this passage condemns having a king so much and yet you give them, you know, not just one, but you give them multiple kings over time. How's this work? What in the world is going on? This is a question that I had. I asked my session. They gave me some helpful feedback. I asked the commentators, you know, when I read their results of their 
answers. But it's, it's a, it was a real crisis for me because we're, our whole notion here is that God provides a good king in the form of a sinner to Israel. But yet when you read this passage, you ask the question, God is so against this. How in the world? What, why? How does this all work, right? How does it all work? And that gets to our last point, right, which is that uh, God permits this to happen uh, explicitly. God permitted this to happen, right? So God says to them, he says, verse 7, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, right? God uh, tells Samuel to go along with the wrong demands of the people. That's what he tells them. He says, go along and do this. He is permitting this, right? Verse 22, obey their voice and make them a king. And then Samuel proceeds to do just this. What is going on? What is happening? And how are we to understand this? Well, at one level, um, it's part of, part of the way that we end up where we are is that God does permit us to go in bad directions, right? That is part of actually understanding your life. You know, understanding, God, how did I get here? Why, why was I doing this? You know, how did... How did I end up in this place? How have I ended up in this relationship? Part of the answer is God permits, permits you when, when you want to walk away from him. There are times where he says, okay, I'll do that. But that's not really the end of the story. Right? The end of the story, of course, is answering this question where the people are saying, we need a king like the rest of the nations. We want someone to lead us like those people have. We want a savior. We want someone to deliver us. And, and all these nations are, are killing us on the battlefield because we don't have that. And God says, but what you really need is you need me to be your king. That's what you really need. He, he says, they've rejected me. But the problem is, is that they are rejecting him. So what does God do? He says, permit it to happen. I will give them Saul, who will be a train wreck. Then I'll give them David, right, who will be a lot better, but not perfect. But then one day, I will give them the opportunity to reject me in a far more explicit way that will actually and ultimately result in their salvation and result in them having the king that they actually need in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, the rejection of God ultimately led to God, God responds to that. He looks cruel in this passage. You want this? Fine. But ultimately, at the end of the day, the end of the story, what God does is he sends a descendant of David to occupy the throne forever and ever. And his first calling, his first job as king is to allow himself to be rejected in absolutely high definition to look you in the face and to say, I'm willing to give myself for you. And every Christian, every human being, most explicitly in the generation that was with him said, we'd rather you die. We'd rather you perish. We would rather have Barabbas instead of you. And Jesus absorbs the guilt and the weight of sin. He takes all of Darren's problems, all of your brokenness, all of the ways that we have chased addictions, all of the ways that we have uh, signed away our lives to unjust forces and people and relationships. He takes all of that brokenness into the depth of his soul and he says, I will bear the weight of these things. I will rise again. I will be your king for never and ever. There will always be the descendant of David on that throne. And the book of Hebrews goes on to tell us that 
he is currently sitting on the throne, waiting for his enemies to be made a footstool for his feet. And as he's up there, see if you believe this, he's praying for you. He, is, he says he, is, he lives to make intercession, to bring before the throne your struggles. You're, you're wondering, do I go back to this taskmaster? Do I go back to this relationship? Do I go back to placing my trust in politicians? Right? Do I go back to wanting my will accomplished at any cost? I'm willing to pay that cost. And what Jesus is doing is he's looking down from heaven and saying, Father, have mercy on Darren. Would you please... Would you please have mercy on him? Would you not allow him to go down this path, but would you send a church community to come around him, to, to pull him in a different direction? Would you, would you give him grace from the things that he's facing so that he would go in another way? That's what Jesus is doing for you this morning if you're in Christ. And friends, what that means is that you can take a moment and do some evaluation on your lives, the things that you're facing, the questions that you're asking, the, the, the paths you're going down, and you're saying, Lord Jesus, what do you want from me? I don't want to pay the cost of a taskmaster. I want to be your child. I want to be your subject. I want you to be my king. So I ask you this morning, where, where is this reality at work in your lives? And could you go to him with me to seek something better? Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, we do praise you uh, because you're a good king. Uh, you are not like uh, the controlling forces of our lives, but you're kind and gracious. Lord Jesus, thank you for your prayers for us this morning. Thank you for interceding before the throne as we are faced with temptations of all kinds. We are tempted to place our trust in other people, things, processes, solutions. Lord, we're, we're prone to wander. We're prone to enter into these kinds of relationships that are so toxic. So we ask for your healing power. We ask for your forgiveness. We ask that you would be our king this morning, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, friends, if that's where you are this morning, if you're in this place saying, I want Jesus to be my king, what he says to you is he says, why don't you come to my banquet? Why don't you enter into my doors? Why don't you sit at my table and be close to me? So let's stand together as we uh, and receive this great Thanksgiving. Dear Ironworks Church, the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord, our God. Yes, Lord, it is right to give you thanks and praise for you have looked upon our lives with profound compassion. You have raised us up from the depths of despair. You have given us promises and inheritance. And Lord, we want to make war on our temptations this morning. We want to make war on all of the tendencies that we have to run from you. And we want to run to you. So I pray, Lord, that you would give us grace to enter into the worship of heaven as we join the voices of the angels in their unending hymn of praise. Let's sing together. Oh God, you are my God, and I will ever praise you. Oh God, you are my God, and I will ever praise you. I will seek you in the morning, and I will learn to walk in your ways. 
Lord, we want you to lead us in the name of Jesus Christ and give us grace to follow. Amen. Let us approach our table praying as we have been taught to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I'd like to invite up.